Welcome to AutoLine this week. We're going to be talking all about the economy and to do just that, I've got three economists that are joining this, us this morning. Ellen Hughes-Cromwick is the chief economist at the Ford Motor Company. Great having you back here, Ellen. Thanks for having me. We also have Charlie Chesbro, the senior economist at IHS Automotive. Great having you too, Charlie. Thank you, John. And Mustafa Mahataram, the chief economist at General Motors. Great having you back as well, Mustafa. Good to be back. Okay, I'm gonna be putting you all on the spot here a little bit, but Ellen, why don't we start with you? Where do you see car sales ending up in 2012? And I ask that because we saw a good bump in 2010 over nine, a good bump over uh, 2010 and 11, where do you see it going in 2012? Well, it looks good coming into the year. We're expecting some something between uh, the 13.5 to 14.5 million unit range. That would include the medium and heavy duty truck segment. That would be up sizably compared to last year's final estimate, which we put at about 13 million units. So you're right, in a two year period, we will have had over a 20% improvement in vehicle sales. So we're moving ahead gradually, but it's certainly decisive at this point. Momentum is growing. Okay, what's your number, Charlie? Well, our, our outlook is very similar. We're looking at about 13.8 uh, total if we look at uh, light and heavy duty. Explain that a little bit for those who don't understand the term between light and heavy duty. Yeah, uh, light uh, vehicles are generally uh, thought of as more the types of vehicles that you might buy at the showroom. Heavy duty would be more the commercial vehicles, heavy trucks, uh, large Semi trucks and delivery vans yeah. and the like. And generally light, uh, light vehicles are about, uh, well, about 13.5 of our forecast right now, 13.5 million. About 300,000 additional would be the heavy duty. And uh, the trend, as Ellen was saying, has definitely been more favorable in, in recent months. Uh, it, it does appear that since the lull of last summer, we're starting to see confidence slowly tick back. We're starting to see the selling rates slowly improve. Uh, and so our outlook is, uh, I think, fairly optimistic going into the year. Mustafa? Uh, roughly the same. I mean, you know, last year at this time, everybody was very, very optimistic. Things, are, things were looking up. And yet a whole bunch of things happened from weather related to earthquakes to oil prices. I learned my lesson, so we're being somewhat more cautious. <laughs> and I also, we also got tired of trying to explain, is it light, is it you know, medium total industry? So we're essentially going out with light. And our, our numbers are roughly the same, 13.5 to 14. But as Ellen mentioned, you know, we're coming in, fourth quarter last year was a very strong quarter, relatively speaking. And pretty much the summer concern, which was really brought on by a lot of temporary factors, is over. So we're looking at a fairly steady path. Charlie, you mentioned an interesting number that uh, medium and heavy-duty sales could be around 300,000. That's a really good number. 300,000 heavy trucks is uh, you know, above where it's been lately, and I don't even mean in the new normal. I mean going back to when things were normal. Talk a little bit about that. Are heavy trucks a leading indicator for the economy? That's what they've always been touted to be. Well, they're certainly one of the indicators. Uh, you know, truck sales are, or the heavy-duty truck sales are a good indicator of sort of the, uh, the construction activity, uh, the, the moving of freight all over the place, the economic activity in general. And so when we start seeing a pickup in that activity, it's a, definitely an indicator that business is starting to uh, make investment again into, uh, into their own transportation needs. And once business starts doing that, we would expect consumers to follow fairly soon after. Ellen, do you keep an eye on heavy-duty yeah, truck sales? Yeah, I mean, commercial trucks have improved. And I think part of it is that during the financial crisis, a lot of the credit markets squeezed so much that a lot of these businesses couldn't replace 
their vehicles. They just couldn't get the credit. Now that the market, the credit market has come back, their trucks are old. So I think that's contributing to this rise in the medium and heavy duty truck segment. So it's a good sign. You know, we don't want to get overly ambitious, but it is looking favorable. And speaking of favorable, Mustafa, you just mentioned how the fourth quarter was extremely strong for the industry, December in particular. Do you see that momentum carrying through oh, the year? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and that was what made the auto show so interesting this year. That the there was Detroit a, Auto Yeah, show. Detroit yeah. Auto Show. There was the sense of optimism, not just among the industry people, but, you know, one of the things I do is I try to sit and listen to what other people are saying. And it looks like People are tired of not spending. They're tired of not having a new car. So people are, we're looking at the cars, the vehicles, from a perspective of, you know, I'd like to buy that. And you're seeing that in some of the sentiment indexes, like Conference Board does a uh, sentiment index on do you plan to buy a vehicle in the next six months. And that's showing very strong numbers. So, yeah, there, there's certainly a great sense of optimism. And Ellen, okay, so people see things, they want to buy them, but how good a shape is the American consumer yeah, in? Uh, what's question. their discretionary income and what sort of trends do you yeah, see along Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because to kind of build on, on what, what um, Mustafa just said, what we're seeing is private jobs uh, now growing at a 1.8% rate from December 2010 through December 2011. And that's without any really material improvement in construction, employment. And we've seen durable good manufacturing jobs be one of the top five job creators last year. So there is some improvement on the job front. You need that for the income gains to kick in. And so that is now showing some signs of improvement in real terms, you know, moving up in that two to 3% range potentially this year. And with inflation coming down somewhat, remember we got that inflation rise with oil Mm -hmm. running up by mid-May last year, if you remember, Mm -hmm. uh, quite markedly. So that's coming uh, down and much more contained. So the fundamentals, I think, for the consumer are improving. They aren't a typical recovery, though. Yeah, no, it it certainly isn't, Charlie, because so many people who are getting jobs aren't making the kind of money they did before they lost their prior job. Do you see that rectifying itself this decade? Well, that's the big that's the big question these days. Will the high paying jobs come back? Uh, You know, certainly uh, a lot of the construction jobs are gone. They're going to be gone for good. At least we're not going to see construction back to the same levels it was before. Uh, And certainly the Wall Street jobs and from the financial collapse, uh, uh, many of those jobs have been shed as well, and those were certainly high-paying jobs. So I think that's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, I think the consumer is facing a tough situation. Uh, you know, there has been all these job losses, confidence has been hit, and they look at sort of the environment that we're in today. And if you look down the road, we know interest rates are going to have to go up because they're at zero today. They can pretty much only go higher. Uh, we know taxes are probably going to have to go up. Uh, you know, we've had uh, tax cuts for a long time, and yet our deficits are, are too high. Uh, you know, when you look at that, we know that consumer spending is going to have to be hit by, by those two things coming. So, uh, you know, the consumer's in a tough spot right now, and I think incomes are, are definitely going to improve, but it's going to be tough to get back to the good old days uh, prior to the uh, collapse we had a few years ago. Is that how you see it, Mustafa? Well, you know, we, no matter how you look at it, we had a bubble in the economy. But I think people, people always tend to overdo optimism at the top and pessimism at the bottom. I think Things got so bad over the last three years after the Lehman Brothers collapse that people 
just seem to be extrapolating from that that things will always be bad or things won't get back to where they were. We hear that at every recession. So I'm more cautiously optimistic. I mean, when you look at where the jobs are coming in now, Ellen mentioned durable goods. Those are high-paying jobs. The, other, the biggest additions of jobs are coming in the healthcare sector. Again, those are pretty well-paying jobs. So to say, you know, to say we'll never have the same level of high-paying jobs, no, I don't agree with that. I think things will change. They'll improve gradually. I mean, you know, we clearly have some fiscal restraint coming, but it doesn't have to dominate. So normally I would be saying, you know, in a recovery like this that would be up in the 4 or 5% growth rate early in the recovery phase, we're not going to get that. So we're looking at 2 to 3. But that's still pretty solid growth. And given where our sales are relative to where we think they ought to be, you know, we should get a pretty steady recovery towards the trend line. And I want to get into what your projections are later in the decade in that. But right now, uh, really for the last year, we've seen all these ups and downs in Europe, you know, with Greece and Italy, Spain and the other countries that are in debt troubles. And one week it sounds like they're getting their act together and the next week it doesn't. And then the next week it sounds like they're not getting their act together and then they they are. Uh, Charlie, is the Eurozone debt crisis going to drag the American economy down? Well, that's a big question. Uh, At this point, we just don't know. Uh, It's very possible that it could. Uh, The likelihood, I think, is fairly small. Uh, But uh, at this point, it looks like Greece will default on its debt, and how the the, uh, European Union or the Eurozone deals with that uh, is really going to have implications for us. If uh, Greece decides to pull out, uh, investors get scared. They start going after Italy. Italy's unable to pay its its debts. Uh, Then we could start seeing a, a whole contagion effect that could spread across Europe rather quickly, and that would impact us. Uh, certainly through uh, lower exports to Europe, uh, uh, investor confidence uh, being hit, uh, uh, businesses pulling back some. So that, I think, could have a detrimental effect to us. Uh, however, our, our expectation is, is that they're going to be able to muddle their way through this, they're gonna, that the European Union is not going to let uh, all of this fall apart, that they will take the steps necessary uh, to try and keep it all together. And so I think we're going to skate by this one. But it's very tough to forecast. Uh, it's kind of like watching a meteor on its way to hit Earth. Uh, if it misses us, uh, things are great. But if it hits us, who knows what's going to happen. Ellen Ford, of course, has extensive mm-hmm. operations in Europe. This must be something that mm-hmm. you're watching keenly. Yes, we are. In fact, you know, I wanted to uh, respond a little bit sure. to the question about is it going to hit the U.S.? And, you know, this crisis started now many months ago. And if you look at the evidence in the rearview mirror, in fact, what we've seen is uh, global investors come here and buy U.S. dollar-denominated financial assets. And you look at the 10-year bond yield, you know, my goodness, we started last year in the 3% range, and it's trading now around 2%. So that's a one percentage point decline. That's contributed, you know, on the margin to uh, good credit borrowing rates for consumers. So oddly enough, that has been, uh, and I hate to say it, but it is a bit of a positive benefit. As for Europe, there are so many speeds of economic growth in Europe because each of these countries has a particular set of circumstances that vary. And so I do think, you know, the periphery markets, you mentioned Greece in particular, you know, obviously a recession there with onerous fiscal austerity. But, you know, frankly, some other markets are doing okay. Hmm. Uh, Look at Russia. The market's booming. And Turkey. Mm -hmm. You know, both of those have slowed down, but 
the growth is still in the 3% range. So I think uh, you know, it takes a little bit of a, of a microscope to look at each of these markets to determine what challenges and opportunities they may have this year. Well, I say Russia's booming. I should say the Russian car market's been booming. You know, because 3% growth is not that great for an emerging economy, is it? Yes, that's right. And their, you know, sales are well over 3 million units now, and they will be one of the largest markets in all of Europe uh, very, very soon. Mustafa, what's your take on the European well, you know, You're seeing two things happening. One, it's the 24-hour news cycle. Time has to be filled. So, you know, if you, look, if you watch some of these news channels, you can see every horror story that people can gen up. And then the second thing that's happening is that, you know, this is a big world. And there are always some countries that are in trouble of some sort. This time it happens to be in Europe, which we think of as a more developed uh, you know, market, more developed economies, that they can manage their the way through. And they're seemingly not doing that right now. So you get a lot more focus on there, a lot more stories. If the same thing was happening in Argentina or one of the South American countries where it happens with greater frequency, you wouldn't hear so much about it. So I, you know, I think they will muddle through it. They'll patch it up. They certainly don't want to have Greece default because, or have it called a default because there are a lot of financial transactions tied to whether it's declared a default or not. So they will try and patch it up. It will hold back growth. But you know, people don't talk about Germany. That's the largest market in Western Europe. And it did exceptionally well this year. And the German economy is, you know, one of the challenges in Europe is that the German economy is outperforming the rest so much that people are saying, how do we close that gap? But Germany is doing very well. So I'm more optimistic on Europe. I think we'll hear a lot of back and forth on it. But at the end of the day, they'll have enough Band-Aids around it to keep it together. In some ways, though, it's the success of Germany, I think, is almost contributing to the problem in that they're not as likely to jump on board and say, let's, let's bail out the other countries. It's, uh, it's a very political issue there. Uh, it, it, what needs to happen is the central bank, or at least what the investors want to have happen, is to start buying up these, these sovereign debt, uh, the, the, the troublesome debt, uh, and they're reluctant to do so, and the German people don't really want to get involved with that because things are going fairly well there. If they were kind of all in the same boat, it seems to me they could probably work together a little more closely to have a unified response to this, and I think that's contributing to the problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's come back to the American market for the moment, and let's look farther down the decade. Uh, Ellen, what do you see happening here? Are we going to get our act together? I, I mean, we're growing slowly, and you said that's good, but let's go out, you know, 2015 and beyond. What do you see in the U.S. economy? Well, actually, last year we did issue our mid-decade outlook, and we do have U.S. industry sales somewhere between 15 and 17 million units on a trend basis. And that really is built up from, as you well know, replacement demand cycles. You know, today we've got about 245 million units on the road, and believe it or not, we have fewer vehicles on the road today than we did three years ago. So we've had a decline, but yet there are two and a half million more potential drivers. People every that, year, every year, population growth, exactly. and we'll get into that in a bit too, right? Yeah. So those, I think, those basic building blocks, even if perhaps vehicle ownership rates aren't at one vehicle per driver 
as they were in the last decade. You know, even with those other two incredible building blocks of the population growth as well as the replacement demand, you know, it really does justify that sort of trend volume by mid-decade. Hmm. And Mustafa, down the decade, how do you see it? Roughly the same. And, you know, we're, we're going to be closing the gap between the 16 million and 14. Uh, that looks like, you know, roughly where we are right now. And again, the same drivers. And, you know, people keep, uh, we're pressed very much on this issue. People are forgetting that we, the current level of sales is really at a recessionary level. I mean, if pre-2008, if you had asked me to forecast a down cycle, I'd have been slightly higher than 14 million. So we're well below that. So we're, we're in, really in a catch-up mode. And the pent-up demand is sitting there. And as the economy improves, as the sentiment improves about the future, you'll certainly see people coming back into the market to buy cars. Charlie, well, your I'd, view? I'd say our, our outlook is very similar. The, the, the two things I would point to that I think may constrain sales just a bit from returning back to sort of the long-term trends we'd all like to see are, one, the availability of, of, uh, of credit for consumers. You know, the credit bubble that we had uh, that created the boom years of the early 2000s, um, that's gone. You know, people using home equity in order to buy their homes, I think that opportunity is going to be gone uh, certainly for the next decade. Um, that's going to hold back sales. And I also think that we're going to see an issue where uh, vehicle price is probably going to start uh, increasing a little bit. We're starting to see more content on vehicles. The manufacturers are now in the profit-making business as opposed to just trying to move the metal. Um, uh, they're the, not going to... The domestic The domestic, excuse me. Uh, they're, they're not going to be uh, as eager before us to, you know, to cut price or to increase incentives to just try and sell that vehicle. They're, they're focused much more on profits. And therefore, we might see you know, sales a little bit below what they might have been otherwise just because they want to start making uh, more profit per vehicle than they did before. Alan, you mentioned something interesting. Two, you say two and a half million new driver's licenses being issued every year. I think the, the population of the United States increases three million people every year. I think mm -hmm. it's slowed down a little bit, but it's around three million a year. So by the end of the decade, we'll have added 30 million people. Exactly. How high is up? I'm saying yeah. maybe we could even, if all the brakes fall right, we could see maybe 20 million new car sales in the U.S. That's my guess. But I'm not an economist. That's why I'm asking you. Well, I'll leave that guess to you. I, I, I like your <laughs> bullishness, but we really have to stay focused on a balanced point of view because we're planning production to meet demand. And so we want to be very prudent about that. And also remember, you know, we're talking about a global sales pace today, we think in 2012, somewhere between 75 and 85 million units. So yes, growth, and we, we expect to see that replacement demand cycle here, but also a lot of growth in many of the markets out there. It's a very exciting mm -hmm. time for the auto industry. So going back to your number then, globally, by the end of the decade, the industry, again, globally, should be building 100 million new cars a year when you see China and India and the rest of the emerging markets really kick in. Yeah. And their incomes have reached that point where they can afford a vehicle. It's so exciting to see people entering the middle class and they have that aspiration. And I, I still remember my first car and I know that feeling and I think just the freedom of having that vehicle is just one of the most exciting experiences, I think. I, I totally agree with you. 
Maybe the new generation isn't as keen on cars as we were, though. But that's another discussion. <laughs> Mustafa, am I crazy? 20 million new car sales in the U.S. with population growth. Could it come anywhere near that? Well, obviously, if ownership you know, rates remain where they are, you will get there sometime. But again, as Ellen pointed out, let's look out for the next three years and get things right. You know, let's not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Get over, overly optimistic and you know, start planning for things that may or may not happen. I mean, you know, again, I'll go back to the news channels. There are lots of things that could go wrong in this uh, sort of scenario. So trying to project out that far just, I think, doesn't make much sense. Does uh, IHS Automotive project that far? How, how high might car sales go? Well, I think certainly 20 million is, is it certainly possible at some point in the future. The question is, what year does that happen? Uh, I would say probably, uh, you know, by the end of this decade, that might be a tough number to reach. Um, uh, but certainly, I think getting into the 17 million range by the end of the decade would be a reasonable number to kind of think that we could uh, progress to. But it's going to be slow, a slow return to that. Uh, we're not going to be getting right back to it, uh, you know, the, the peak year that we had in 2000, 2001. Uh, that's going to take quite a while to get there. Well, of course, that was during the time of giveaway credit. Anybody could get a yeah. loan at that point, and I don't think we will return to that. But I, another thing that I keep hearing from executives in the supplier industry is that they don't see any big growth coming because the supply base has been considerably weakened due to uh, the big collapse a couple of years ago. Do, do you hear that from suppliers as well, that they hope things grow slowly because if it really pops, they can't keep up? Well, there have been concerns about capacity, uh, even for the, for the manufacturers themselves, that uh, if the market really pops, uh, can we keep pace with it? Uh, I think at this point, the suppliers are just happy to be making money again. Uh, it was a tough couple of years for them. Uh, uh, you know, I think the vast majority of suppliers are in very sound uh, financial footing these days and, and uh, might have difficulty if we had a really fast-growing market keeping pace. I think that's a nice problem to have. Mm -hmm. Mustafa, we see a lot of foreign automakers and suppliers moving manufacturing to the United States, or, or certainly mm -hmm. North America. Uh, General Motors and Ford both have announced that they're insourcing work that had been overseas. Do you see that continuing, or is this just a little blip in time? Well, it's really not a blip in time, because if you look at where currencies have moved, uh, you know, over the last three to five years, I mean, especially with respect to Japan, but even China, Korea, the dollar is a much weaker currency. With logistics, I think logistics, uh, you know, with oil prices going up, transportation costs are going up, so you want to move closer. And then I think add on top of that the Japanese earthquake, the Thailand floods that disrupted the logistics chain. People are saying, let's get closer to our customer. So, yes, I see the move to North America continuing. And fortunately, unfortunately, I think Mexico will be a big beneficiary of that that a lot of people that are moving back to North America, especially suppliers, are going to be going into Mexico. You know, some of the new assembly plants that the Japanese companies have announced are in Mexico. So I think the whole region will benefit. Mexico probably will benefit disproportionately from that. Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. Ellen, uh, Mustafa says, you know, they're bringing it back to be close to the market. But in a lot of cases, we're seeing companies doing a lot more exporting out of the U.S. and, and the NAFTA region. Do, do you think Again, same question. Do you think we'll see more manufacturers moving here? And, and will the, the U.S. finally become a major exporter 
uh, it is a major exporter. Will it help reduce our trade deficit, I guess, is what I should ask. Well, you know, the um, current administration is very interested in achieving this uh, goal of doubling export, exports by mid-decade, and manufacturing is certainly a part of that. Uh, our capital goods industry here in the U.S., combined with the automotive sector, uh, have great innovations in place and can compete globally. So I, I think there are some really good signs that we are out there in light of even very intense competition from many markets to be a competitor and a player. So there's a lot of focus on increasing competitiveness. And I think it's a great turn of events here in the states to see people focused on how manufacturing can contribute to that. Yeah, it's a big change in my lifetime, that's for sure. Charlie, how do you see that? Well, I, I do see that, uh, you know, certainly the United States is, uh, it, we're going to see a blip in manufacturing. We're going to start to see it increase and more opportunities to export. But I still think the general trend is, is that you're going to be, as Mustafa was saying, that you're going to be uh, building and selling in the market uh, in the same place. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's tough for the Americans to compete on labor costs with these developing countries. Uh, I just don't see us shipping too many more vehicles into China. They're just not going to allow that to happen. Uh, and when you look at the Indian market, uh, you know, the folks there just don't have the incomes to sort of buy the luxury or what would probably be considered luxury American vehicles coming into that market. Uh, so I think the, well, there may be some increase in manufacturing, but the vast majority is going to be uh, produced right there where they sell it. Mustafa, it's a little unfair. We're down to the very end here, but the Chinese have got to be coming back to the, the U.S. market. I say coming back because they've, they've appeared at a few car shows, but I mean come back and start selling. John, you know, I think they did. They tried it out. They dipped their foot in. But my bet is they will do what the Japanese did and the Koreans did, which is first expand in the developing countries themselves. I mean, if you go to China now, I mean, Africa, you're seeing a lot more Chinese product come in. If you go to some of the poorer Asian countries, Pakistan being one, you're seeing a lot more Chinese cars there. So what you're really going to see is the Chinese really establish their export bases by going into markets where they have an advantage, where the low cost you know, is the predominant reason for buying. And then they'll come here. So I think when BYD and others started showing up at U.S. auto shows, my reaction was too early. And I think they've come to the same conclusion. So they will be in markets where their primary advantage, which is low cost. And with no that, place to I'm start. afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. Thanks so much, bud. Ellen hughes Cromick at Ford, Charlie Chesbro from IHS Automotive, Mustafa Mahataram, thank you so much. And I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. <laughs>